Welcome to NCBR's Elite Agent Podcast, the ultimate resource for real estate professionals looking to elevate their skills, master their craft, and achieve unparalleled success in this incredible industry. Welcome to NCBR's Elite Agent Podcast, your resource for improving your business and honing your skills in our incredible real estate industry. I'm your host today, Rhonda Messenborg, and I'm excited to be with Adam Thayer of Sayer, Regan, and Thayer, an attorney office here in Newport, Rhode Island. Adam, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So we're going to be talking about residential and commercial closings with Adam today. So Adam, I have a couple of questions that I prepared that I would like to ask you. So first, first of all, let's start at the beginning. What is an attorney's role in the real estate transaction? Um, well, we kind of do a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, mental health counselor often ends up being part of the role, but that's not what we get paid to do. Um, really, th- we're, we're initially talking to the client and the realtor and maybe the loan officer, however the file is coming in, and we're going to start talking about purchase and sales agreements, the offer process, which can vary depending on the state that you're in. If you're doing a deal in Massachusetts versus Rhode Island, for example, those processes are a little bit different. And then also, there's a difference between the commercial process and the, and the residential one. But really, that first step is going to be in the, the purchase and sales agreement process. And then the next step is going to be uh, working through the title and making sure that title is clear and whatever documents we need to convey or accept clear title get done. And then ultimately, we're working towards the the settlement process itself, getting a settlement statement put together, uh, handling all the disbursements, getting the documents on record, um, and then ultimately, you know, dispersing to the parties, paying everyone. And then if you're on the buyer's side, you're probably issuing title insurance policies to ensure the buyer's title to own the property. And then if there's any lenders involved, the lender's lien position and their ability to you know, have a lien and potentially foreclose on that property if they ever needed to. Okay, great. And and so we got through that whole process and now closing day is here. So as a seller and a buyer, what do what can I expect to happen on closing day? Well, this has changed since COVID. Um, before COVID, we would have, you know, the buyer, the seller, the realtors, the lender, maybe both attorneys all in a room breathing on each other for an hour. And then COVID happened, and obviously that had to change. And so <clears throat> the, the current custom, I'd say, is that sellers are meeting with their lawyer in advance. They're signing their documents, whether it's a deed, <clears throat> any sort of tax forms, and then they're usually giving their lawyer power of attorney. Um, and then the, their lawyer is then uh, holding onto those documents in escrow pending the actual closing happening. They will then get those to the buyer's attorney's office. The buyer's attorney's office is then working with the lender if there is one or maybe just the buyer in preparing the settlement statement, getting all the, you know, kind of honchoing all the, the figures and the documents. And then they'll send a settlement statement out to everybody. The realtors, the seller, the lender, everybody to approve. Once that's approved, the seller side, uh, their attorney is then usually, once they get uh, approval from their uh, client and they answer any questions that they might have, their lawyer is usually then signing that under power of attorney or maybe we're doing DocuSign. You know, there's a lot of uh, electronic signatures these days, particularly in cash deals. And then they're getting that over to the buyer side uh, to ultimately finalize closing, record, and then disperse. And the buyer side is a little bit more involved. They're probably going to end up being sitting with the buyer, physically signing the documents, reviewing any loan documents, stuff like that. But the seller side is usually we're getting things done in advance. Again, this is because these closings now, the customer has just shifted to being more piecemeal as opposed to everyone all together at the same time. 
that's great. And you actually answered one of my questions in there was um, whether or not the buyer and the seller, they need to be there in person on closing day. So it sounds like maybe a seller doesn't necessarily have to, but for a buyer, do they have to be present at closing? Um, no, not necessarily. So I'd say 90 to 95% of the time my buyer is present. Um, but if it's a cash deal, you know, no financing, um, they can just electronically sign the documents. We, we, my office uses Adobe eSign, so that's just the one that we just happen to use. But you know, DotLoop or DocuSign or any of the other ones are fine. And that buyer will then either get us the, uh, uh, you know, a bank check or a, a wire for uh, wire the cash to close to us, whatever it might be. Um, and then they'll just they'll DocuSign. Um, if they're if they're they do have financing though, someone needs to wet sign the documents. And that basically gives us three options. One, they attend and they sign with me. Two, they give power of attorney. Very frequently that's, you know, I'll sign as power of attorney because it's brutal and I'll let my father have the easy job of signing a settlement agent. Um, occasionally, um, the lender will have a, an underwriting condition that someone financially involved in the transaction cannot be power of attorney. So later today, another local realtor, Jeff Brooks, I'm going to plug him because he's a great guy. Um, is signing on behalf of a buyer that we have that's actually a Joe Fitzpatrick client. So it just kind of shows you how what it's how great it is to practice here because everyone's kind of, you know, Jeff has nothing to do with this transaction. He's just kind of doing us all a favor and just being a nice guy. Um, then the third thing would be a mail-out closing, which is by far the worst one to do. I, I discourage it whenever I can because we need that means we need to get everything so far in advance of the closing to then get everything out to this buyer wherever they are in the world, potentially if they're – maybe they might be military and they're on a Navy base in Japan or something. The hope that they sign everything perfectly with their notary, then get it back to us, and then we can finally close. If anything, any hiccups happen there, they miss a signature, FedEx gets delayed, whatever, we're kind of back to square one. So ideally, they're here signing with me. Secondarily, maybe they're doing power of attorney. And then a very distant third option is some sort of a mail-out closing. Well, it's good that there that there are some options there. Um, so let let's like back up a little bit about the the process. And you had mentioned that um, about running title on the property and checking the title for any defects. Uh, what potential issues can arise with the title? And then what if something does come back? What do you do then? So people, this comes up all the time when people ask me about uh, title insurance and is title insurance worth it? Should you get it? So. Um, when a lawyer represents a, uh, a buyer in a property or if there's, maybe there's a refinance, um, whenever anything is going to impact title, we do a title search. In many states like Rhode Island and Connecticut, that is at the municipal level. So you buy a property in Newport, you're searching the land evidence records in Newport City Hall. Other states like New Hampshire and Massachusetts is at the county level. So you buy a property in Somerset, it's a land evidence records in Fall River. Um, and so we, we, we order a title search. We make sure we look at everything. All, do all the deeds match up? Are there any liens on title like a mortgage or maybe the seller had been sued and they didn't pay their visa bill and there's a, a lien on there for that? Um, or there are other things. If someone passes away on title, uh, there, could, there could be an estate tax lien um, that might need to be uh, taken care of. So the buyer side gets that title report through the title insurance company and then we then share that with the seller side and just say, hey, here's kind of a checklist of all the things that you need to get done. Once those things get done or maybe there's a hiccup there and we have to figure out a creative solution like, for example, very frequently the inheritance tax lien discharges do not come in in time for closing. And so we might have to ask for some money for that to come in post-closing. Um, you know, we don't have to get creative because, listen, this is real estate. It can be messy. Um, and then ultimately we close 
And then uh, after we get all the recorded documents back from the county or the city or whatever, we then provide those to the title insurance company who then issues the title insurance policies. And then post-closing, if anything comes up, the lender and if there if there was a lender and then the buyer are both insured. They're, they're, the buyer's title is insured and the lender's lien position is, is insured. So a great example, I had a closing uh, with actually Joe Fitzpatrick a few years ago prior to COVID where we discovered that the young women who sold the property to my client had actually tricked their grandmother into deeding them the property and she had dementia. That means that deed is invalid. And we discovered this a month post-closing. And because that deed to the young women was invalid, the deed from them to my client was then invalid. And so my guy then had to file a title insurance claim. And the title insurance company basically says, all right, we will sue for you know at no expense to the, uh, to the client, to the buyer, to defend their title. If they win, great, problem goes away. If they lose, they're going to then compensate our buyer for their, their, their damages. And in that case, it would be a total loss. You would lose the property. So they'd have to reimburse my buyer the money he paid for the property. And then an almost infinite number of smaller, more ticky-tack things that they can – maybe there's a missing discharge from a bank that no longer exists. The title insurance company will agree to indemnify anybody in favor of that. So that's kind of the process. We, we search the title. We then comply with whatever we need to clear title, and then we ultimately insure the title so that if anything ever comes up in the future, we know that the buyer and the lender are both protected. And you know there are, are uh, you know a handful of t- big title insurance companies locally. They're they're not going anywhere. These are not fly by night operations. They're going to stand by it uh, forever, essentially. This is such a great it's such a great topic, and I think um, for us as realtors, like, all this information is so good because we I'm sure all of us can think back to a transaction that we've done where we've had to deal with at least one of these at least one of these items that have popped up. Um, so this is just you know great information and and also as always just to make sure that you are in um, you know clear communication and you have the the your attorney that you can call and ask these questions to. It's so important to know that you have somebody who has your who has your clients back. Um, so as as let's talk a little bit about the closing disclosure um, that gets sent out. So as the attorney whether you're representing the seller or you're representing the buyer, are you reviewing that and going over that with them and making sure that there's no that there's no mistakes on it or or anything like that prior to closing? Yeah, so we've got kind of, I'd say there's three buckets of settlement statements that you'll see. Um, one is the Alta settlement statement. <clears throat> the second one is a HUD. And the third one would be a closing disclosure or a CD. The Alta and the HUD are kind of similar, and they're almost, they look almost like accounting ledgers. And these were used on every deal prior to the last few years uh, when some of the post-financial crisis new regulations came into effect. We still do use those settlement statements for cash deals and commercial deals. Um, and kind of on those two documents, um, page one is kind of the highlight reel. It's like the big numbers. And then page two will have some of the more nitty gritty where the numbers pull forward to page one. But usually you're going to see some sort of total on page one, at least on the HUD. Some depends on how the altos can be set up. Um, the CDs, the closing disclosures, that's when there is a residentially financed transaction with a, with an institutional lender. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you get a loan from Bank Newport, Bank of America, whoever, you have to use a closing disclosure. Um, and so those, the whole idea behind those is know before you owe. And so there on that one, it breaks it out to a buyer and a seller the, on the altas and the HUDs. That's one combined settlement statement that every has everybody's numbers on them. The CDs, they're split up buyer and seller. The buyer one is more involved. Page one is kind of a, 
they, I mean, I don't mean to insult anybody, but they try to idiot proof it, like intentionally try to idiot proof it, where they're giving you, here's what your monthly payment is. Here's your interest rate. Can the rate vary? Yes. If so, how much? What is your monthly escrow? All these things that prior to a few years ago, you had to sift through these documents to figure out. Whereas this, it's right in your face, large font, page one. Um, the seller one isn't as involved um, because it's really, it's much more of like a half of a HUD or half of an altar where it's literally just an accounting ledger almost. Now, prior to, when, when we're representing the buyer side, we are putting those together. And so when there's a lender involved, I kind of describe it as almost when uh, like a, a law gets passed where there's, you know, the Senate and the House. My office will do our, our closing disclosure and we'll say with all the information that we know, we know what the taxes on the property are so we can prorate those. We know what our fees are, stuff like that. We know what the title premiums are. The lender, they have things that they know. They know what their fees are. They know what the initial deposit to the escrow account is going to be, those things. And we send them to each other and then we reconcile them into one document. And then at that point, that it gets ultimately like redisclosed to the buyer. Um, on both sides, whether it's the seller side or the buyer side, we're doing our best to make sure these are accurate. But <clears throat> we're people and you know everyone's people, so mistakes can happen, even inadvertently. Um, or, you know, even when with, through no fault of our own, a very common scenario would be a tax proration. So we prorate the taxes as of the date of closing, <clears throat> and we will literally call the town and make sure that no tax payments have hit the account since we initially checked what the taxes were. The problem with that is if the seller has a, a lender with an escrow account, they could have mailed out a check that's, you know, in transit and has not hit the town. We close, then that check arrives. Now the taxes have been double paid. And so as a result of that, I have – and every other lawyer has these documents that they usually call errors and omissions or compliance agreement. I call them the don't be a jerk or the play nice agreement because that's really what it is. We're just – everyone's doing the best that they can. Sometimes even though we do things perfectly, there can still be an issue post-closing, and we need everybody to kind of cooperate. I love that. I love the name of your of your document. That That's awesome. Um, so after so the closing happens, money is exchanged. How how does all that money get dispersed out? Who who is actually writing those checks and and how is it getting dispersed to the parties? So the buyer's attorney's office is going to handle that, um, and because the buyer's attorney's office is going to have they're the ones doing the settlement statement, um, and then they're issuing all the disbursements. So the realtors will very like let's just pretend that I'm the buyer's attorney in this in a, in a you know hypothetical here. The the realtor will bring me any sort of an excess deposit check. The buyers are bringing me the balance of their cash to close, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. They're sending me their commission statements. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then we're dispersing, ultimately. It's a lot of check cutting. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of checks a month. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, and then also sometimes we do have to wire, which brings in the elephant in the room of wire fraud, which is just terrifyingly prevalent. I have been involved in multiple deals where there have been uh, successful wire fraud attempts, and um, it's 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 horrifying. So my many law firms have just stopped wiring completely, which I appreciate and I wish I could do, but I just can't do that. Um, it's it's a wiring is unfortunately a necessity of the real estate business, particularly if you have back to back closings where money has to go from one firm to the other in the same day. There just isn't enough time for a check to be sent and to clear and all that kind of stuff. So. My office, uh, we used we have this wire fraud insurance policy, which is incredibly expensive with a massive deductible, and then we also use this uh, third party company called Certified, which we've just started doing in the last few months. But basically, 
we send that out to whoever's going to be the recipient of the wire, let's say a seller's proceeds or um, whatever, maybe we're wiring to, in Connecticut, you wire um, everything to the seller's attorney and then they disperse to the listing agent and to the, uh, they send the payoffs and everything out. So maybe we're sending money to another law firm. This is a total pain in the neck and people complain about it, but it will fully insure the wire. And the way way it happens is you have to get the email address and the cell phone number of the recipient, and then they go go and log on, and they go through one of these uh, like million verification process where it's checking where their IP address is logging on from. It's asking you those questions like, which of these addresses have you been associated with in the last 10 years? Mother's maiden name, all these different things to verify as much as we possibly can, and then that wire is insured. <clears throat> and people will complain to me that it's a pain in the neck and they hate doing it, and I say, yeah, but at the same time, we're wiring you $800,000, a million dollars, five million, whatever crazy amount of money it is. If 10 minutes of your time to make sure that that wire is insured, uh, you know, it's a pain in the neck, but it's, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, that's that's so important. I think we've all heard some of those horror stories out there and it is it is very scary. Um, so I just have one more question for you. And I, I think it's a question as realtors, we get it all the time, almost with every single one of our transactions. Our sellers and our buyers want to understand what is included in closing costs. Can you speak a little bit about what's included on both sides? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there are obviously legal fees. We're going to make sure the lawyer gets paid. I mean, Roger Williams Law School loans don't pay themselves. Um, but beyond that, it's very different between the two sides. So on a buyer side, um, there's no real hard and fast line as to what you consider a, a closing cost versus just an expense of owning the home. And this can become a, st uh, a sticking point when you're doing, let's say, a closing cost credit. Maybe you're going to buy the house for 100 grand, but you agree to pay 105 in exchange for a $5,000 closing cost credit back because that, not getting into the nitty gritty, reduces the cash to close that the buyer has to bring. And so the question is, well, what counts as a closing cost on a buyer side? Well, certainly legal fees, the title insurance premiums, recording fees to the town, any fees to the lender like for an appraisal or points to get the rate down, anything like that. But then there are other numbers that I don't I don't personally don't view them as a closing cost, like the way I think we would like an expense of the closing itself. They're more an expense of owning the home going forward. And that would be your initial deposit into your escrow account. Um, and maybe the prepayment of the homeowner's insurance for the coming year. That has nothing to you. You could I mean that has nothing to do with the actual closing itself. It's owning the home, so that becomes important when, let's say, the real like the traditional closing costs, legal fees, lender fees, title premium, stuff like that. Let's say they only total four thousand, but your buyer has now agreed to pay $5,000 extra in exchange for a $5,000 closing cost credit. We need that prepayment of insurance. We need that initial deposit in the escrow account to count in this calculation here so we can capture that full five grand. So when you're doing a purchase and sales agreement, I usually like to say that closing costs on the buyer side will include prepayments um, or initial deposits in escrow accounts to make sure we're not leaving any money on the table. On the And then randomly, you'll have some towns that have other um, specific closing costs, like in Little Compton, the LCAT. Huge deal. Little Compton, for anybody who doesn't know, has a conservancy tax that is a tax the buyer has to pay. It's like, a you know, you're joining the Little Compton Club, you get to pay your membership dues to get admitted, okay? Same thing out in Block Island, the town is called New Shoreham. Same thing. They have, a, they have a conservancy tax there as well. Those very frequently forget to get disclosed to buyers, particularly when the lender or the realtor don't frequently do business there. And that can be a huge problem when you have a closing disclosure because the lender cannot disclose it at the 11th hour. The lender will have to eat it. 
And I've seen lenders eat $100,000 LCATs on multi-million dollar properties out in Little Compton. On the seller side, <clears throat> excuse me, it's somewhat similar. I mean, you've got your your legal fees and recording fees to the town and stuff like that, but you then also have sales tax, which is very frequently called uh, tax stamps or conveyance taxes. The rate varies. Um, in Rhode Island, it's four dollars and sixty cents per thousand, very generally speaking. So if you sell a house for a hundred thousand dollars, the seller pays four hundred and sixty uh, dollars in sales tax. The rate doubles above $800,000, but only for residential properties, just to make it as confusing as possible. And then if you sell a dwelling on leased land, which could be a mobile home or maybe a cottage, like somewhere down at Roy Carpenter's Beach in Matunic, those, because it's a bill of sale, that's half the rate, so it's $2.30 uh, per thousand. Mass is similar, $4.56 per thousand. And then the other states in New England get more expensive from there. So <clears throat> I know we'll talk about it in, a, in another podcast here, but about doing business across state lines, but... This is something that you as a realtor want to know about because if your seller is selling in state A to buy, then buy in Rhode Island, whether that's you know New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, whatever, you want to help them ballpark the amount of money they're going to pull out of closing A to then bring to your Rhode Island closing. It's really important to know. Um, I had a client down here, a local realtor who bought a property in uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire very famously does not have uh, an income tax and doesn't have a sales tax. So they have to get the money somewhere. Well, so the, the sales tax rate is $15 per thousand. So it's over triple what Rhode Island and Massachusetts are. And it's split 50-50 between the buyer and the seller. So the seller is going to get whacked with $7.50 per thousand. But then the buyer also gets whacked with $7.50 per thousand. Um, and then finally, <clears throat> another closing cost we potentially have. Again, it's not really a closing cost, but it's something that you will have to account for at closing. Is in Rhode Island and some other states like uh, Vermont and Maine, you have a withholding for capital gains taxes if the seller is not a resident of that state. Um, and so the process varies slightly between the different states, and also there's a, an additional layer of it if it's a non-U.S. resident. There's a f federal withholding if you have like an international client who's from Bermuda or Canada and they're selling their property. Um, so those are things you just want to be aware of. It's not, Again, it's not really an expense of closing, but it will be taken out at, on the settlement statement. So it will reduce your, your client's ultimate like net proceeds. Wow, that was that was a great list. And I think, you know, too, for us, you know, as realtors, it's not a bad idea over time to, um, as you really learn to understand what those are, is maybe put them in a just in a file someplace. So when you're when your clients are just are asking you, you just have a ballpark. And then of course, have them speak with their attorney who can really kind of delve down in into those and help them determine what that cost might might look like. Um, Adam, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing all of this amazing information with us. And thank you all for joining us and for listening in on this on this topic that's all near and dear to us. Um, look forward to sharing more great topics with you. Um, and until then, be well. Be well.